but a great joy that there is to gather together under your name. We worship you. You alone are worthy. We would ascribe as the angels even now recorded in your word are ascribing to you holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of your glory. We lift our voices in praise to you. We sacrifice our lives in worship of you. And may it be our desire today, O oh Lord, to hear from you. May your spirit have free reign in our presence today. May all the distractions of the world be vanquished. And may the very glories of heaven be revealed. We rejoice in already what we have had the pleasure of ascribing to you. That you are our glorious river. Staying upon you is where we find our rest. You are worth standing up for. Because you are our righteous king. And your name is so wonderful that it causes us to blush to even say your glorious name. Oh, may we this morning, as we glean from your word, oh Lord God, may we ascribe in our hearts that our lives would be a witness for you. Thank you, oh God, for this morning and allowing us the privilege to be here. Some could not be here because of illnesses. I pray, O oh God, that you would raise them by your will and for your glory. Our hearts rejoice in seeing Richard Lenker with us this morning. The journey that you have been taking, he and, and his wonderful wife Dawn, together on. I, I thank you, Lord, that he's a witness of answer to prayer we're grateful to lord for each and everyone here and lord your grace has been sufficient to carry us through the night and even meet us before our feet touch the ground this morning but yet we ask that your grace would be sufficient even as we open your word today Guide our thoughts. May I speak words, O Lord, that would honor you. May that which we lack, would you supply. That which we need, may you abundantly give. All for your honor and for your glory, we ask these things. Amen. We're continuing our, our series of what the Bible has to say concerning issues, not only from a theological, but now we are even governing into the realm of what does the Bible say about 
self-government. Last week, we sort of introduced this situation, knowing full well that there are four areas of government that are spoken of in the Word of God. We have self-government, which we'll be looking at today. Then we have family government. Then we have church government. And lastly, civil government. I will say this without unequivocally backing away that I think, uh, I, I believe that our present situation in civil government is because we have failed in the previous three. We're now in a society where we want the government to take care of us. And that's not its design in the word of God. In fact, we will even pull from our own constitution what the government is supposed to be doing. And it has gone way beyond that. But that's for another time and another place. That will be on the 22nd of October. It may be a day that you're going to schedule a vacation day. That I don't know. But at least we were going to pursue and look at these different areas of government. When we talk about self-government, the first thing we need to do is to come up with a definition. What do we mean by self-government? The word of God does not say self-government, but it does say this word, discipleship. It's very evident in the word of God that discipleship is at the heart of God. In other words, it's best described, if you will, and we'll get to this verse later on in this presentation, but it's best described in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, that discipleship literally is about our lives being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That's what discipleship is. But let me give you somewhat of a definition. Discipleship is the process by which a person brings all of life under the headship of Jesus Christ. All of life. And in other words... Can I say it plainly? All of life under the headship. Maybe you didn't catch that. All of life under the headship of Jesus Christ. And it is a process. We're talking about, if you might remember our presentation on what sanctification is. Sanctification is also a process and discipleship is part of that process. And it goes on, it continues on until the day either the Lord would call us all home or we meet him through death. And by the way, just to settle all of your hearts, the rapture did not happen yesterday. I don't know if you caught that or not. It was on the, on the web and uh, even I think there were a couple of magazines that highlighted that. It was, the rapture was supposed to happen yesterday. All the signs pointed to it. Funny thing, even Jesus doesn't know that. Until the father turns to him and says, go get the children. But it didn't happen, so we're still in the process of discipleship. It also, this process, can't be accomplished all at once. Any more than a baby can become an adult overnight. Thirdly, <laughs> excuse me, you may not be where you want to be in your spiritual growth, but you at least ought to be more spiritual this year than you were last year. It is a continual 
growth process. The Word of God has this to say. Turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. It's an interesting passage because in it, Jesus is talking to his disciples about persecution that is coming. But notice in verse 24 and 25 what disciple means. It says, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. <laughs> if they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore, do not fear, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. So what we have in this particular passage is this. The word disciple means learner, someone who learns. It refers to a student who follows the teachings and patterns of another so closely that the student becomes a clone of the teacher. In our mission statement, when it talks about making disciples, we're not making disciples that follow us. We're making disciples that follow Jesus Christ. He alone is worthy. He alone is the one for whom we should be leading people to and that they become more like him. Thirdly, we could also call a disciple an apprentice. Someone who stands at the side of a skilled master in a trade to learn that trade thoroughly. That's our definitions, but what about the goal? What is the goal of discipleship? Well, the first goal is this, looking like Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8 and verse 29, it says, To be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the, fir the first fruits among many brethren. We are to look like Jesus Christ. <coughs> All of our children and all of your children have one thing in common. They look like you. For my children, that's not necessarily a blessing. That may very well be the burden that they must bear for the rest of their life. But we've heard many people say that, oh, we saw your son just the other day and he looks just like you. I, I usually respond by saying, I'm sorry for him. Our children resemble us. They carry in them the genes that come from us. As a disciple of Jesus Christ, we carry the genes of Jesus in us. Well, how do you know that? Well, once an individual comes to faith in Jesus Christ by trusting in him and him alone, that individual, there's a resonance that takes up in him called Holy Spirit. 
And Holy Spirit begins the process in our lives of making us more like Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, we may not look like him physically, but we should take on a likeness of him in all that we say and do. This means this, that our pattern of life, that this means so pattern your life after Christ to follow him so closely that you speak, act, and think like him. It's an interesting illustration that we come back to in Hebrews chapter 12, 1 and 2. It talks about running the race and keeping our eyes focused on Jesus Christ. The story goes of a, a farmer who was trying to teach his son how to plow. And his son wasn't catching the concept. And so the father said to him, do you see that cow over there? Yes, Dad, I do. I want you to keep the front of the tractor on that cow. That cow will give you a straight line. Okay, the father leaves and comes back an hour and a half later. And all of a sudden he sees in the field all of these different designs. And the father says, son, I thought I told you to keep the tractor on, the, on that cow. And he said, I did, Dad, but the cow moved. Apparently you didn't get it. <laughs> the catch is this. Jesus Christ never deviates from whom he is. The problem is, is that in our lives, we have a tendency of trying to look like somebody else other than Jesus. The writer Hebrew says, keep your eyes focused on him. He's at the finish line. He will be there. He will be the one for whom you will stand before. A lot of you younger ones have no idea who I'm going to talk about right now, but let's talk about lining up all of life. You can't really tell right now, but there was a time when I was pretty good in baseball. I had someone who I wanted to pattern my life after. His name was Willie Mays. I'd be embarrassed to have you raise your hands how many of you remember watching Willie Mays play. But I have an autographed baseball from Willie Mays sitting on my shelf in my office. Willie Mays made what's called the basket catch famous. No one else could do it but he. In fact, his greatest uh, uh, act of baseball was when the Giants used to play in the polo grounds in New York City. Now I'm really stretching you, aren't I? The polo grounds are no longer there. The Giants used to play there, and there was a game where an individual was on third base the batter was up, and he hit a monstrous fly ball that was going over Willie Mays's head. If you could hit a, a home run in center field of the polo grounds, you were doing something special. But Willie Mays 
he, he, he ran the ball down. He caught it in his basket catch over his shoulder. And he turned around. As soon as he caught it, he turned around and he threw the guy out at home plate who thought he could just come in from the fly ball. Well, I played center field in Little League. I made basket catches. Until my coach one day sat me on the bench and he said, you are not Willie Mays. You will catch the ball as I tell you to catch the ball. Two hands, by the way, two hands. Who are we lining up our life after? As a disciple, it means that if you and Christ disagree, you are wrong. You're wrong. If you're doing things contrary to the word of God, you're wrong. It also means if your interests clash with his, you need to change your interests. Let me let you in on a little secret. It's this. Is that Jesus Christ doesn't want to share you with anybody else but him. No one else died for you. No one else rose for you. No program ever saved anybody. Only Jesus Christ. It's interesting in the book of Romans chapter 6 or chapter 5 through 8 it talks about we need to reckon ourselves to Christ. That word reckon literally means to identify ourselves with him. If you read from chapter 5 through chapter 8 of the book of Romans, you will find a specific theme that flows through the whole three chapters. In chapter 5, we are introduced to the problem of sin and how it came about. By one man, sin entered the world, Adam. Chapter 5. In chapter 5 also it says, but by one man, life entered the world through Jesus Christ. In chapter 6, it talks about, therefore, dying to ourselves and reckoning ourselves in the life of Jesus Christ. Chapter 7 is a famous chapter. We all like it. It says, oh, wretched man that I am, who can separate me or save me from this stupid situation? When Paul says, that which I know I should do, I do find myself not doing. That which I know I should not be doing, I find myself doing. In chapter 8, the glorious chapter begins, verse 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. And chapter 8 is the answer talks about being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, 8, verse 29. And so here we are to reckon ourselves. When we line up all of our life, we are to reckon ourselves unto Jesus Christ. But here's the process. That's the goal. Now the process. Notice that discipleship is a process. It is not an event. It's not something that you get all at one shot. 
the process of spiritual growth is from the inside out. It's called transformation. When I was a kid, there used to be this show called Transformers. Now they've made big movies out of it for kids who are now adults. And the Transformers, all of a sudden, there can be like a truck or a car. They're the Autobots, in case you want to know. And then all of a sudden, from there, they transform into that particular robot. So in other words, what's inside comes out. It's the same process of a butterfly. Butterflies aren't born butterflies. They're born worms. Oh, we fancy word, caterpillar. Then all of a sudden, they climb up a bush one day, and they spin their cocoon, and they stay in there until what comes out is a butterfly. See, what's inside comes out. That's the process of transformation. Romans 12, 1 and 2 describes it a little bit when it says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So what's inside, who is Holy Spirit, all of a sudden is now on exhibit outside. <clears throat> As we allow the Holy Spirit to work in us, then the inside change will cause an outward change, thus conforming the person's conduct to the image of Christ, which is the essence of discipleship. There's another word that's used too in Scripture. Its emphasis is abiding in Christ. In John 15, 1 to 8, Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me. And the process of developing spiritual fruit comes from the fact that as we abide or have our life in Jesus Christ. It's also described in Galatians 5, 16 to 25, to the fruit of the Spirit. This is who we are supposed to be. But there's a discipline. A discipline of discipleship begins in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Let's turn to 1 Timothy, please. Don't ever take my word for it. Go to the word of God. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Verses 7 and 8. Let's begin at verse 6. That's a good place to begin in the text. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you'll be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. But reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things. Having promise of the life that, is, that now is and of that which is to come. 
The discipline of discipleship is this. It is to say no to what is wrong and saying yes to what is right. You may be thinking that Christianity is too hard. Of course it is hard. It wasn't supposed to be easy. Do you recognize that the, mo- the things that are most important in this world are never easy to attain? It takes work. You've heard this story. Someone in New York City said, how do I get to Carnegie Hall? The individual said, practice, practice, practice. The most attainable things, the most important attainable things in this world always take hard work. But what's interesting is that God has given us a built-in discipline. I, I don't know if you've caught the verse, but in, in, in Titus chapter 2, just, just a book over. Yeah, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. I want you to catch something from this. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that. Don't miss that phrase. The grace of salvation is teaching us something. What is it teaching us? To deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. It teaches us that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. That he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Did you catch what we have already built in? All that we need to be a disciple of Jesus Christ has been given to us. And it rests in that wonderful word, grace. The grace that brings salvation has appeared to all men. But it teaches us and it instructs us and it reminds us of who's coming again. That is our built-in Discipline. Yes, life, Christianity is hard. But I'm here to tell you everything that you need has already been given. All that you need to be a disciple of Jesus Christ has already been given to you. With God's grace, he supplies whatever you lack in order to get you where he wants you to go. So when you say, I can't, God says, 
I have graced you with a supply of spiritual energy to say no to sin and unrighteousness and yes to righteousness. It is the Holy Spirit's job to supply the measure of grace we need to move us along towards spiritual maturity as we live in dependence of God. All that we have has been supplied. And I really think that the reason so many Christians are struggling with spiritual discipline is that they're doing a program rather than pursuing a person. Did you catch that in Titus chapter 2 and verse 13? When it says, it's not about a program, it's about looking forward or looking to a person. And the person is Jesus Christ. The person is Jesus Christ. Not a completion of a program. Yes, reading the word of God is very important. Yes, prayer is very important. Yes, worship is very important. But those are just programs. Programs never saved you. Jesus Christ did. The question is, is who do you have your eyes on? A cow that moves or the person of Christ who's at the finish line? I close with this. The demands of discipleship is, first of all, putting Jesus Christ first. That's, first, that's Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18 when it says that he should have the preeminence in our lives. And then there's this transcending relationship, and time is, is fleeting. It doesn't give me time to fully develop this passage, but you read it in Luke chapter 14, 25 to 27. Jesus turns to the multitude, and he tells them what it takes to be his disciples. You must, as he says, hate your mother, your father, your siblings. Is Jesus literally saying that we're to hate them? No. But there is a transcending relationship that goes beyond those bounds. And is what is my relationship to Jesus Christ? Is my relationship with Jesus Christ more than more precious than other relationships of this earth. Your relationship with Jesus Christ transcends any earthly relationship. And your identity with Jesus Christ transcends any of this world's desires. So what's the conclusion? A little boy frantically was screaming at the top of his lungs. Soon the mother comes into the room and finds out that her little boy has both hands stuck in a very valuable vase 
that has been in the family for generations. And they tried all kinds of things to get the little boy's hands out. They tried cooking oil. They, they tried grease. Anything that they could in order to be able to pry the little boy's hands out of the jar in order to save the possession of that particular vase. The father came to one conclusion. I need to go get a hammer. As he was walking into the room with a hammer, the little boy looked up at him and, and said these words, Dad, would it be better if I let go of the penny I'm holding on to? Possessions. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 14 and verse 33, Jesus says to forsake everything. In other words, the key is letting go. Here's a quote that I found. You cannot possess your possessions and expect to possess Christ too. I'm here to tell you this morning in closing that possessions go beyond monetary things. Possessions go beyond the realm of cars and homes, jobs. Possessions go all the way into the depths of our soul when we look at bitterness Envying, lying, cheating. The unfortunate thing of it is, is too often we think we control sin. When in reality it controls us. The question on the table here is this. What possession are you hanging on to? Is it partying like the world? Is it bitterness toward a person? Is it anger over a situation? Jesus says the key of being my disciple is, are you willing to let go? Because if you remain to hold on to Jesus says, you cannot be my disciple. That's the form of self-government. A country in its present situation is in so much trouble because we as people don't know how to self-govern. Which leads to, we don't know how to family govern. Which leads to, we have no idea what church govern is. And allows civil government to go well beyond its bounds. Please. But all that is in me, I beg of you. Let go of worldly lusts. And follow Jesus Christ, for he alone is worthy. Let's pray. Father.
My heart aches to hear of situations in the family. Lord, you work in people's hearts this evening, this morning. Bitterness has no place in the heart of a child of God. Chasing after a wild life of parties has no place in the life of a child of God. Anger, bitterment, has no place in the life of a child of God. For we are dead to ourselves and alive in Jesus Christ. Oh God, I pray that there would be an awakening even in my heart. An awakening of what it really means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Lead, O oh Lord, in decisions this morning. As people would come before you. Lord, I pray that there would be a healing factor that comes to the Holy Spirit. In order to create in our family. Grace Community Church. A place of peace and rest. A place of where we would be known as disciples of Jesus Christ. Lead, O oh Lord God, as you see fit. And may we as your people be attentive and listen to what you have to say. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.